Hello and welcome to Wind Your Neck In and I'm your host Niall Amott. This week's episode I'm delighted to say is with Bristol Bears director of rugby Pat Lamb. It is great to have my teammate at Worcester Warriors DJ Van Velza and his superior leather company Van Velza and Smith back on board to sponsor the next three episodes. Van Velza and Smith, or for short VVS, previously sponsored episode 4 with Donico Callahan and we are delighted to get them back on board. As a growing company with big aspirations and big goals, it's fair to say they are well on their way to smashing to the top of the leather boot and accessory world and taking prime position as a leader in that industry. For more information, please have a look on their Instagram at Van Velza and Smith or treat yourself to having a peek at their website www.vvsleather.co.uk for some info on their quality goods. An exciting giveaway will be announced, but as always, for now, enjoy the episode. Okay, a warm welcome to this episode of Wind Your Neck In, and it gives me great pleasure to be able to welcome the current Bristol Bears director of rugby, Pat Lamb. Pat, a big welcome, and thanks for jumping on the chat today. Pleasure, no. Good to see you, mate. Yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a weird couple of weeks, and I think the usual kind of conversation starts off with house quarantine and, and how are you keeping are the family well and are, and are you keeping yourself busy yeah very well i mean that's you, you realize the, the extreme of what's going on outside and the unbelievable job the nhs is doing to keep everyone safe but you know and then you come focused to your world and and um you know and you always look for positives and certainly having uh, family time that you didn't expect at this time of the year you know but not just family time quality family time being able to do some I mean, I don't think you remember the last time I did a board game for ages. We've done quite a few, and um, but just spend time together. And but the other, the other real bonus has been the, um, you know, the, the ability to reflect on, and the time to reflect on the season and work, and, and how you, more importantly, how you can make improvements and the lessons that you learned, and and how we can keep pushing forward. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is a great, it, it's an awful circumstance that we're in, but it is providing a lot of the people that I am having these conversations with, and me and myself as well, opportunity for reflection, which is obviously a huge part of, of what kind of instigates progression. So one of the things that we, when, when doing my research, I saw and I thought was really interesting that you kind of pitched to people, and you, it's of utmost importance, in my opinion, is this kind of concept of just having a routine, even when you're out of routine. So I was wondering if you could touch on a little bit of that, and maybe also any suggestions that you gave to the lads at the Bristol Bears in terms of how they can try and keep routine, because we know it's super important in terms of your physical and mental wellness. Yeah, exactly. You know, like so I've come through that play stage, coach stage. So I've been in that environment where when I first started, I was a school teacher. So rugby training was Tuesday and Thursdays. <clears throat> now and again, the coach will throw on Monday in, and then you play on Saturday. But the rest, and you do your own training early in the morning before heading to work or in the evening. And so even in those days, you had a routine, but you know, it's slightly different. But everyone has a routine of, uh, you know, get go to work. And that's why it's important to find the job you really enjoy. And then I lived the life of the professional and the very the day it went professional. And uh, it was like, oh, fantastic. You know, we're going to get paid uh, for something we love doing and we've got more time to do certain things. And, and then you end up getting into the routine of that and, you know, which has become the norm now. But certainly at the time, it felt it was like a real buzz to be less time, uh, you know, doing the other jobs and, and just being able to find, you know, spend time with mates and work on your skills. But I think the, the biggest things are gone. I've also, through my time now in Korea, been able to see how um, I was blessed to be able to transition straight from playing coaching. I was actually doing both. And then into, so I was fortunate to be able to have that. But seeing a lot of guys that I knew well, but also reading stories and watching guys who didn't handle that situation well and that struggled as soon as their careers finished. And the biggest thing was suddenly going from routine 
to it's not there anymore. And I remember actually, I used to go through that after rugby tours. We used to do the six week, seven week rugby tours. You know, when you're with living and breathing rugby, you know, and, the, and you're away from home, you're overseas, the other side of the world, and it's awesome. And then you get you get homesick, obviously. But then when you get home, that first two three week transition, it's just like what the heck's going on? Because you realise, yeah. oh, I was in a routine of getting up. Breakfast was provided for you. We go to training, we go to meetings. You know, we have a, you know have all the good things on tour and enjoy yourselves. But you're living in with a group of people, and then suddenly you come back, and what it made me realize is the importance of routine and transitioning and, and making sure even in the routine, there is that, is that flexibility to ensure, you know, um, that there's growth in other areas of your life, you know, and, and, and that's where, you know, the RPA, um, the, um, you know, teams that have professional development managers that try to push guys into areas and there's a far bit bigger awareness to make sure that's going on because of the experiences of other people and what they've been through. And I realized that <clears throat> when we're going to go into this lockdown, we don't, we didn't know how long. I mean, if you had told everyone at the beginning, it's going to be minimum or 10 weeks, you're not going to see each other. I don't think many people would have handled that. So it's been good to go week to week. So the importance of it was, well, let's put out a four week schedule. Let's, even though we're not together, let's make sure that we do our reporting. It normally has to be in by 8.30. It's all done on their phones. Let's keep yeah. that going. You know, we'll send out training options that they can do, but let's make sure, let's try and tra- train between 10 and 12. Um, staff meetings, we'll do Monday, 9 o'clock. We'll do rugby or Bears social catch-up meetings when the furlough came on because they became mm-hmm. optional. We'll have that at a certain time. So guys could have planned their week, you know, so if they were going to do extra study or they're going to do gardening or they're going to do things that they were, had to do in lockdown time with the kids, they knew that there was a, a Bears requirement and all of these things which help keep routine but also it wasn't just about that it was about the connection then we we were guaranteed to be able to connect each other and you know being able to see each other and then we got to the point where you know we were encouraging everyone to we had groups that everyone were in to connect your group and as it got past the fourth to the fifth week we started saying well have a think about who you haven't touched base in the team and, and touch base and try and do face to face now you know it's far better than just a phone call phone call is good but face-to-face takes it to another level. And I realised that when we had the staff meetings or the players and all the players' faces in, you go, oh, geez, I haven't seen them. Someone routine I've seen every day, yeah. just seeing the face, it just, I don't know, must release endorphins, surely, and adrenaline. But it makes you feel good. So it's been a big part of our plan because it's part of our culture that uh, the relationships, the connections to, um, and uh, if anything, it's come through real strongly in, the, in this lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. I think the work that you do to create that kind of connection is that word that you use quite a lot is really interesting. And I'm really looking forward to getting into some of that because I've, I've kind of researched some of the ways that you do that. But I think your point on professional rugby players or, or professional sport, you know, we are indoctrinated into a schedule that gets sent to us every Sunday. And then you go to this world where, it all stops and you know I don't know uh, how other clubs have dealt with it but some of the things that I did like I just got myself a blank book and I write almost a to-do list and I try and fill that book with things that I need to tick off because then at the end of the day when you tick those things off and you see that you've achieved four or five small targets throughout the day you go like okay that was productive there's nothing worse than having a day where it just you end up on the sofa watching Netflix and well <laughs> nothing's productive you know I think that that's an ama- that's amazing stuff and you touched on some of the the, the transition that you had from being a player and I'm quite keen first off to to discuss some of the experiences that you had as a player because obviously 
growing up in in, uh, in New Zealand, playing for Auckland North Harbour, and you talked about that initial stage of the professional rugby when you went uh, to the, the very first season of Super Rugby with the Crusaders. What was it like growing up and playing in New Zealand at that time when that transition from amateur to professional was in its infancy? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it was like uh, everyone just got excited because we were just so used to just playing this game because it was our passion, it was what we loved. And, and then suddenly overnight, we were, we were signing contracts. You know, I was a, I was a school teacher at the time. and But I was actually, um, I, I was working for an organisation that did drug education throughout throughout the country, you know, in schools, high schools, universities. So I, I always say that I didn't tell people how to take drugs or whatever, or tell them not to take drugs. It was all about making sure and um, that we're making informed decisions. That we're not at the bottom of the cliff. So, well, no one told me that. No one told me that. You know, even even simple things like alcohol. As I said, I'm not here to, um, not here to tell you uh, to drink or not. But understanding what alcohol does, how it goes outside the body. I used to have some real fun. I used to an April Winfrey show, and I used to ask a simple question to these students or young people: Is is if you're you know drunk, how do you get sober? And they came up with all uh, cold showers, rotten eggs, all these. <laughs> And then, then you're able to give the information to show what it, the science, what it actually does. But the information was only one side of it. The most important thing, as we all know, the, the thing that we all go through, and from the day we we're born to the day we die, but it's predominantly strong from when we're 13 to 21, probably a bit less than now, is peer pressure. You know, you have all intentions, all intentions to say, you know, know and behave and do the right thing. But when the pressure comes on, and so I was able to relate that to sport and say, you know, I'll, I'll take a rugby ball and throw it and say, throw me the ball. And they just throw the ball. That's good. Throw the ball. The key, which in our game, is being able to do it under pressure. The key to be able to do the right thing is that when you're under pressure. So I used to do a lot of role playing, acting, and, and train them how to deal with peer pressure, how to say it, and be put them in the scenarios. And it was really rewarding. And I didn't realize I'm only, I didn't even plan to say this today to you, but it was like, it's now because it's part of my coaching, all of these things that you learn as you go through. But certainly going back to your question about that transition, you know, suddenly we're getting paid for things. But what I quickly realized after about maybe a month or two, I remember I came for a very good Auckland team, a real dominant Auckland team, probably the best in the world at that stage. Yeah. It was all All Blacks. I quickly realized professionalism isn't about getting paid. Professionalism is about your standards, the way you do things. That's being professional. And um, because I was saying, well, hold on, I'm getting paid for this, but I'm looking at this team here and the way they behave, it's not, I mean, I remember when we weren't getting paid, we were, our standards, our training, the way we dressed, the way we did things. And that sort of, we came through school and I was, um, uh, when I was coming through school and I was involved, I was, I was big when I was young, so I was in the first team for five years. And, uh, Clip me, fair play. Yeah, so I ended up being the captain. So I was very involved in the leadership of it. And I used to do, funny enough, I you know, I had this the way I run my leadership team. I now think back, I was doing it when I was 8, 17, 18 at school. We used to give guys roles and responsibility to run the yeah. team. And um, But all of these things influenced me coming through that transition that although we're getting paid, actually it's not about that. It's about having clear standards, good relationships and clarity for everybody. But it was uh, an exciting time. And when I look how far it's come, uh, we've made big progress in some areas and maybe not so in others. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's no secret in that Crusaders was probably a frustrating time for you. I think you played three games in that season and then up comes the opportunity to move over to the UK and you go to Newcastle for the 97-98 season, which starts off with a Premiership win. And your legacy in England as a player is huge because from the Newcastle experience, where you move on to the Northampton Saints team for three years where you end up winning the Heineken Cup. And that that game, like as an Irish guy, on off the ball, you'll hear, you know, Keith Wood and O'Gara and Quinney and all these boys referencing that game all the time. And it's, you know, I haven't gone back and watched through that game. It was, it was incredible because that Northampton team that you played in was decimated with injuries. And I think your leadership within that team, obviously, is something that you've brought through from a very young age and continue to develop. But when you moved to England, was that, was that decision uh, in, in, an, in an effort to try and get more game time or was it a financial one or was it a little bit of everything? It was a bit of everything because what was happening is in that stage, see, I played for Samoa in the 91 World Cup. In those days, you know, Samoa... Um, and it wasn't even tier two, it would have been probably tier, tier, tier 100. <laughs> and, um, was, uh, wasn't invited to the first World Cup in 87, and that was gutting, you know, because New Zealand and uh, World Rugby didn't invite them. So they qualified through. By that stage, I was young, I was coming through um, the Auckland system, New Zealand system, um, through the age grades. Um, and but I was going back to Samoa all the time for my big holidays um, in December, and the, and I was right outside. I used to live, my my cousins live right outside the rugby um, ground, so we would always go out there. And all the I didn't realise at the time, and I'd just be playing touch. There'd be touch every afternoon um, yeah. at, at the end of work, and I got to know a lot of the people. But there's the future Samoan coach was there, Peter Schuster, and you know he saw me play there, and so I always say hello to the guys, and they all became mates. But then what happened was we played Samoa in 1990 and uh, 91 early on and um, in the Super 6, I think it was then. And, um, and we won convincingly and I played well and I was, I was a young guy and that's when Samoa asked me to be involved in 91. They had one more tour to Australia and then go to the World Cup. And at that stage I was thinking, oh, well, if I, if I never go to the World Cup, uh, no, I'll never get the chance. And um, and plus, you know, obviously being Samoan and going back, I knew them. So I went there and um, and it was amazing. Still the highlight of my rugby career, the 91 World Cup, because of, in those days, people take for granted, you know, Samoan. But, you know, it wasn't always popular in New Zealand to be a Samoan. They were considered the, the factory workers. They, you yeah. know, there was the dawn raids, the famous dawn raids where they, uh, they shipped Samoans out and, and um, put them on planes and send them back and, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, even I was a minority coming through school um, at the school I went to. So the reason it was such a highlight, what we did and launched Samoa on the map, obviously beating Wales, going to the quarterfinal, was that it gave so many Samoans pride. Suddenly I was a school teacher and I mean, everyone was about in New Zealand, I'm going to be an All Black, I'm going to be an All Black. That suddenly changed to a lot of the young kids, I'm going to play for the money Samoa and that, which was massive. But what happened was then, there was I also knew that well, since I was a kid, it was always about being an All Black. You know, because again, there was no Samoa. I was born and bred, grew up there. Um, so I got a chance to, the next year, I was in the New Zealand Sevens again. I'd been in that team for a while. And um, while I was over there, I got a trial at 92. And um, you know, there were some, obviously some big players there. And I ended yeah. up making, um, uh, missed out on the team to Australia, but they had an injury, so I got called over. And in my 32 minutes of my debut, I, um, I cracked my ribs, but I kept going. I didn't have my cartilage. I couldn't move. Wow. And, um, and I ended up coming back. That's a sore one. Uh, yeah. So it didn't last very long. And then the following year, 93, um, that season, 92 was a ride of 93. Um, I had another all-black trial, but I was with the World Cup, New Zealand with the World Cup sevens uh, in Scotland. And um, 
I did my cruise ship. And um, so that season was a write-off. And then basically coming around to 94, I was asked uh, by the sum, you know, I was in 95, and they said, look, you know, we're really keen for you to come and leadership and so forth. And I remember at the time thinking to them, like, I've given this a good go. New Zealand's in a good place. And I said, if I go back to Samoa, I'll never change again. Then I'm going to commit my rest of my career to Samoa. So I joined up in 94, became captain in 95 at the World Cup in South Africa. We, it was a massive highlight to get to the quarterfinals back-to-back because everyone thought it was a fluke in 91. And then I retired in 99. But what happened, because I was now fully involved with Samoa, you know, in the New Zealand scene with professionalism as well, it was, you know, obviously I'm not, I wasn't available for certain games for in the Auckland scene. And, and then after the 95 World Cup, Buck Shelford, you know, one of my uh, heroes when I was growing, he was coaching at Harbour. Time. And I, he says, I need you to come, to, I'd like you to come to North Harbour. So I went, okay, yeah. Buck tells you, you go. So I went there and... <laughs> And then basically what happened was in, uh, on that tour, start 96, we came. We played Ireland. It was a good time to play well uh, because we played Oxford in a warm-up game and I wasn't playing, but um, Dean Ryan and, and Steve Bates asked me to, to join uh, if I'd like to if consider coming to uh, play in the Northern Hemisphere. I said, yeah, I'll be keen, I'll be keen. And um, we played Ireland, 96, to Lansdowne Road in the first night game. And uh, sorry, mate, but we, we did win well that game. It was a good one to play well. Bob Andrews, yeah. I knew you were going to have to throw that in. Yeah, that went well. And then he, uh, that's when I got asked to, he asked Brian Williams, our coach, if I could come and spend a, a, a down day in, in New, Newcastle. And that's when I sold the vision, the dream. And I thought this would be awesome. So I, I, I wasn't paid that much, um, but I went over there and, um, and I fully enjoyed it. Loved the whole thing and I loved the Northern Hemisphere, being able to full time. But more importantly, the problem we had in New Zealand, that you know, the family and being down in Christchurch coming up, we were fully committed together, and um, you know, it was, just, it was enabled you to play your best, train, and 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 that was to me was real professionalism then. Yeah, like I said, the legacy as a player in the Northern Hemisphere is, is huge, and the, those experiences obviously will have influenced you in in your progression to being a, a coach. But one of the things I'd like to touch on before we go to the coaching is there's a strong theme with some of the high performance coaches that I've been speaking to is this theme of teaching because we know teaching and coaching are synonymous with each other, but your experience as a teacher, how has that influenced the way you go about your, your attitude towards coaching? Because there's a lot of what Stuart Lancaster discussed with us on the pod is around the how you coach and how you teach. And um, I wonder is it, have you transferred much across? Oh, there is that. I, I, I would not be a coach if I, uh, or effective coach. I hadn't come from my, my teacher's training. And interesting enough, I actually wanted to be a PZ teacher. Um, but in those days in New Zealand, you had to go down to Dunedin, down the bottom south. And I was coming through the Auckland system and I didn't really want to go down there. And one of my coach representative coaches at school was the head of PZ at one of the big schools in Auckland. And he asked me, what's your dream? And I said, well, I, I want to go be a P teacher. I don't want to go down there. He goes, mate, go to primary school training. I said, Really? Yes, you can always go up, but you can stay in Auckland. And so I am. I'm, I said, oh, so that's your pathway. So I did that. But I tell you what, the thing I loved about the primary school training is they teach you. Yeah, you, know, you learn child development, but you learn how to teach, and you learn. And and the thing about coaching and anything, it's it's being. You might have all the knowledge, but it's being able to get your message across effectively, understanding that everyone has different learning styles. They learn differently. You can't just stand up and go right class. Da, 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 da. I just told you, now you should all understand it. 
you know, you've got to be able to demonstrate all sorts of, you know, methods and ways. And, and with now technology, it's, it's even more possible to do that. And then the other side of it too is you've got to build relationships because if you build, you've got to actually know, do I put my hug around this guy or do I give, need to show him the stick? Well, the only, some people don't need the stick, you know. Some people don't need the hug. But how do you know that? How well do you know the people? So you've got to be able to relate and be honest and be authentic. So all of those um you know, without a doubt, the teaching side of it was, was massive because it gave you ways to do it. But one of the things I did learn from teaching is making sure that people understand the why. You know, and that's certainly, you know, from a coaching perspective, you know, I drive it a lot with the, co- with, with the staff to make sure you demonstrate the why because rather than just telling people what to do and how to do it, if they understand the why, it makes sense and then uh, everything becomes more effective. Yeah, this ties in perfectly, almost like we pre-planned it, which we haven't. But the 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 word that uh, Stuart used, uh, and you're using the exact same terminology, is differentiation. It's that ability to get messages to different people who learn in different ways. You know, one person can can take a message on just verbally, and another person needs to see it. And I think that's what that's one of the areas that I'm most interested in because I see in the environment we're in, there is so many different cultures, so many different um, backgrounds that you have to make sure that everyone gets the message for the team to be successful and I think it's something I'm, I'm looking forward to delving into with you and as you bring on to the why this is this is probably in my opinion you know one of the things that I look at you and think you do one of the best in the world at it and it's the vision it's the why and I wonder if you'd be willing to you know how did you how did you kind of create the ability to to create this story for people to follow you and maybe give us some ideas on, on what that vision looks like because I know for a fact with some of the lads in Connaught that I worked with, there was some of the themes that you worked with there that have gone into the, the Bristol thing as well. And this, this whole grassroots to green jerseys is something that I thought was brilliant. And that's a vision plan. That's a statement. What, what are your thoughts on how you build that? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the big equation of philosophy is, and I've said it a few times, is that vision drives your leadership. So all the leaders... You know, the decisions they should be making is around the vision. It also keeps people accountable. So I'm able to say to you, go, Niall, tell me how your action over here is actually helping us achieve the vision. And they go, oh, yeah, actually, it's not, you know, it's, it's, so it keeps everyone accountable, including myself. So once the vision drives the leaders, so leaders shouldn't be making decisions where you catch out people because they're doing things on their own agenda. Once that happens, then the leadership then is, is driving the culture. The, mm-hmm. the culture is starting to evolve because we're all making those decisions on the vision. Then the next thing is then the culture then drives the performance and that's what creates the legacy. So when I went to Connacht and when I went to Bristol, it was the same philosophy equation that I put out there and everyone went, well. And then after a year or two, people are going, oh, yeah, we're actually living it. You, you know, people are looking at things and going, oh, well, this is awesome. You know, the boys are really involved in the community and stuff like that because it's part of our vision. And one of the things at the moment, if any player or any um, staff member that you're interviewing, you know, it's important that you explain the vision very clearly. So rather than I, I just want to play rugby and then they get here, you sign them up to play rugby, they come here and then you say, oh, by the way, um, you know, we've got to do all this work in the community because this is what we're about. And this what? I didn't know that. So I'd rather say very clearly. And so when I came to both Connacht and uh, Bristol, the first question I asked everyone, um, the people that asked me to come, what's your vision? What are you going? And it's interesting because the reason why I asked that because I had – other options and I looked at all the options and Connacht wasn't the first 
if I, if I step back and I've thought about it, before I even asked that question of the vision, there's no, probably the fifth option for me then. Mm. By the time I asked the vision, it became my first option, you know, and because the others, I didn't agree with that because you then have to make your decision. Here's the organization, the club, and here's mine, right? And if it does, if it lines up, we're going to have success and I'm going to enjoy this and it's going to be great as long as they're being honest about it. If it doesn't line up, they want this, but I want this, you're going to fall over somewhere along the line. So making sure that's, um, that, that's you know, uh, is, is vital. And it's like a simple thing, like, you know, let's say, uh, like, I've just, you know, if I have you and I'm talking and, and we've just met and then I have someone that I've known for 10 years and I ask, okay, what's, what do you think we should do? And you've both given me answers. Which answer do we take? Do I take the guy I've known for years and I trust him? No, I ask which one of these suggestions is going to help us achieve the vision. And if it's yours that I've only met and, you know, really quickly, it's like, yep, that's it. Does it? So it's not about, it's all about vision. Everything we do is about vision. Yeah, so it sets the big picture for people to work towards because, like you said, when you set a, a, a mission statement, a vision, whatever terminology, there's a million different words for it. But when you set that and you put in place the fundamental expectations that you have for people, you can drive that towards the vision. And I think the grass roots to green jersey thing is just something I'd like to touch on because what you did at Connaught, you know, being an Irish lad and seeing it firsthand, was was it so impressive because that was a province that for as long as the provinces have been formed was, was at the bottom of the pile. So what sort of things did they say to you that made you believe that you could drive the standard of what Connacht Rugby could produce to become in the Rabo, you know, title winners, which was probably outside of the circle that you guys worked in, which I'm sure you guys were working towards, was probably never expected. No, it wasn't by anyone. So the first thing is when I asked them what the vision was, they told me, that it was to be the best Irish province within five years. And I said to them, you're currently the worst day. They said, yeah. I said, okay, I like that. I like the ambition. And then I got an opportunity to explain how I would do this. And, um, and they liked that. But the problem we had was that when I arrived there, and I arrived um, uh, about four weeks early before I was going to start, which gave me a chance to observe, meet people, have a chat, conversation. Mm. I went around to everyone. What's the vision of Connacht Rugby? No, no one, not, and I asked so many people, not one person said to me to be the best province in Irish rugby. So I remember I went to the first board meeting, it was Eric Alwood's last one, and Eric, um, you know, he was giving his last presentation, was going through us, and then all the board members are there, there's a few on the table. And then at the end of it, they said, oh, look, we got this, and we, we were booked for this um, in Dublin um, to watch uh, Leinster play, uh, but also, it was end of season, but also to um, have a conference around building the culture of Connick Rugby. And so they asked Eric Elwood, you know, what, what are your thoughts about the culture? And he goes, you really want to know? And he ripped in. He absolutely ripped in. He said, well, there's the team culture and there's the organisation culture. And it's not the same. And he go, and he was going through it all. And I was sitting there going, oh, this is great. Intriguing. You can see a lot of people going to this. And then Eric caught up. He goes, look, you asked me. I'm, as I said, I'm always honest. And, you know, it was fair play to Eric. But yeah. I loved it because I, I loved the conflict of the challenge because the brings things to the surface rather than hiding it. And then Eric left. And then um, you could see all these guys and they were apologising. And, and I was getting my first slide ready for them. And then they were going, man, I'm sorry about that, Pat. I said, no, it's fantastic. Because if, if Eric can't air that hair, if I can't air that hair, then it's never going to get done. And then they were going, oh, well, how are we going to do this about culture, culture, culture? And then I put my hand up. And I said, guys, can I show you my first slide? And they said, 
Yeah, yeah. So I put up the slide and it said vision drives leadership, leadership drives culture, culture drives performance, leads legacy. I said, the problem I have here, you two guys that met me in Dublin and I asked you what the vision, you told me it was to be the best province in Ireland in five years' time. I've been here four weeks, not one person knows this. So what you got is no one's clear on the vision, which means that leaders are making all different decisions. What Eric's talking about is, you know, it's not saying there's not good people here, but we're all working in different directions. So first of all, we need to do that, and then we'll get the culture right once we get that right. And so that meeting changed from a culture meeting to a vision meeting, and then that vision changed. And so we got, and then it started to become a process where everyone got involved uh, to eventually, over a bit of a period of time, you know, I said, well, I've come for this thing, but the problem of being the best province in Ireland, everyone fought around the first team. It needed to be a whole organisation. And what birthed over a process, over a bit of time, and a lot of people involved was grassroots to green shirts, was it? And then a very similar thing that we that I brought here too about inspiring the community through rugby success and then the different things that we had here. And it's the same process when I came to Bristol. Oh, Pat, yeah. we want you to come to Bristol, do what you do in Connacht. And I said, well, hold on, what's your vision? And that's where Steve Lansdowne talked to me about rugby success. We need it because I've been struggling. But he started talking to me about Bristol, the community, the people, and, and, and about inspiring them. And I went, perfect, love it. And then I was able to say, well, this again is the plan. So I was able to put the plan in both places to fit the vision. So that made it really easy because it was more difficult and connect obviously with the resources. But yeah. I, I said, if I ever went anywhere, which had more money, which obviously Bristol does, I'd still do the plan exactly the same. It just obviously you got more access to and more control to do things when you have a bit more resource. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now that we've touched on the the why, I'm interested to know because you have a reputation as a great presenter and a, and a great person who can get a very clear message. I mean, one of the things that I look at for you know top coaches is that they can get their point across really clearly, really concisely and effectively. And there's a reputation around the way that you put presentations together or when you're trying to speak to a group, you know, in terms of that, how you get your message across because you've set the picture with the why you know, what sort of tools do you lean on? Well, is it as it seems? Is there an element of storytelling or theming? And most importantly, how do you get the players on board with it? Because it's one message from, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. A coach giving a message is, can be strong depending on who the coach is. But when you get players to fundamentally create that or buy into that themselves, that's a different gravy. I think that's the, it's a bit of everything you said there. And it is the one about taking guys on a journey, you know, taking guys on a story and trying to inspire them. And I think, you know, the biggest thing is that I've learned, I've been very fortunate and blessed to be in some very successful teams, but as a player, as a coach, but I've also been fortunate and blessed to be in some horrific teams. <laughs> so you're able to sit back and go, okay. And as a player, I would sit back and go, uh, sorry, as a coach, I'd go, what did I like about a coach? How did they inspire me? How didn't they? What don't I like? <laughs> You know, and I asked that question with, um, you know, staff. And when I'm interviewing staff, I said, all players, how do you like to be coached? How don't you like to be coached? You know, making sure, and everyone's different, but making sure, but I certainly like to present, I can't sit there for too long and listen. And, you know, so you're using very tone of voices, you drive the key messages home, but it's about being organized and prepared. And there's three things I look for staff. Number one, do you know your stuff, but do you have a growth mindset? You know, there's nothing worse than people who know their stuff and they think that's it. And this is the 
a written word. I don't need to learn anymore. You know, you get found out that life, the game, life, the world evolves and you've got to keep growing with it and understanding trying to get better. The second one is um, I look for is your ability to get your message across, but also your relationship skills go into that as well. The third one is about uh, PPD, I call it, planning, preparation and detail. You know, for teachers, we had to have annual plans, six monthly plans, monthly plans, you know, and the plan has to, the, the process and everything you're doing has to relate to the plan. If you've got that and you've got a system, then you it helps you review. You're reviewing to the plan. How well did I do the plan? What could I do better? And then the fourth thing that is really important when I'm looking for any staff, whether it's a doctor, a physio, a kit man, a rugby coach, um, it's the same principles. The last one is a team person. Can you work in a team with people? Understanding that your area is very important, but it's not the only area. It's exactly like a rugby team. You know, you're part of the link. We'll always only be as strong as our weakest link. And we generally in business and, and rugby teams or any business will hire people on number one. You know, they know their stuff. They're very good. But we normally get rid of people generally on number four. They, their character, their values, or their, their ability to work in a, in a team environment. So all four of those areas I, I, I try to, um, you know, and I use those four areas in reviews of the, of the uh, staff as well. Yeah, I think that's that's brilliant, and it, and it ties in nicely with the next section, which for me is, I kind of wrote it down like like very simply, in its simplest form, it's the person versus the person's ability. So when you're looking at people, I know from having worked with people who you've worked with, the, the, there's a huge importance on what the, the person is like as a, as, as a fundamentally as a human being. And then, there, and then we can move on to how they get across their rugby ability or whether they're a doctor and their ability to make decisions and, and the rest of it. But maybe you could give some insight for the people listening as to how important it is that these people come across as good people because the, one of the best rugby players on the planet isn't exempt of this and you talk openly about Charles Pietau who is a phenomenal rugby player but you said that the reason you signed him is because he's fundamentally a good person too. I think um, there's, a, there's a quote I have in my coaching philosophy which, which is important for me but also reflect the type of people you're looking for. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if you've got people that are caring, and you think about it, you know, people make their extra effort for you. If people actually want to know uh, more about you than just being a rugby player, you know, I always challenge guys, how well do you know me? Yeah, I know him well. Right? Does he have a partner? Does he have a wife? Uh, yeah, he does. Okay, good. What's her name? Uh, I'm not sure. So how well, so how well do you really know? Mm. And I said, you can be passing a rugby ball and say, mate, you got a partner? Said, What's her name? And he goes, oh, it's Shelley. Okay, oh, cool. So how's Shelley? The next time, how's Shelley? How's he doing and stuff? And you, you create an interest and suddenly people are thinking, geez, he cares. And then you, you start to open up to that person. And we need that if we're going to go into, you know, what I call, you know, life and death sport in that sense. Uh, and the analogy of like you're in the war, you want to be able to trust people. So getting guys to open up in their relationships, you know, that's the big part of it for me. And if you put uh, an emphasis on growing the person as well as growing the player, and I have that in the last line of my coaching philosophy, enter rugby program, exit a better person and a better rugby player, then for me, I can sleep at night. Regardless if we finish first in the competition or last, to get my uh, self-worth from what the media say to me, what people say to me, whether I'm really good or I'm really bad, I don't need, you know, don't get me wrong, I want my competitors, I want to be first, of course. but not at the expense of not growing people. 
So I normally get guys to give me a rating out of 10, you know, versus the best player in the world, you know, and um, they, in their opinion, whoever that is, so it's the, let's say it's a 10, and he says, well, the best 10 for me ever is Dan Carter or Johnny Wilkinson. I say, okay, great, where are you? And they say, oh, I'm a five. What do you need to do to get to become a 10? Okay, great, let's see how we can work it. But by the time they leave at the end of the year or two years or three years, I normally go back and I ask them the same question. If they can give me a 5.5, a six, a seven, an eight, but I, I, um, you know, I, I can, I'm, I feel really good that a lot of our people have helped them, and more importantly, they put the work in. Yeah. So the the relationships thing is super interesting for me. It's the fundamental for getting people to work together towards the why, which is the vision. And I'm curious to know: Have there been times as a coach? That that's been challenged. There are times whenever you've had that debate with whether the person is is worth their weight versus their clear rugby ability. Yeah, I think the um, one of the things that um, ultimately we're in, we're in um, you know we're in a game that uh, it's results driven. Ultimately, it's about high performance. And you know what I, what I always say is the main currency we all have, myself included. And I like to keep everyone accountable to the same sort of standard is our performance, mm-hmm. you know. So what I tend to do is I don't like to mix relationship and performance. Now, that means I will build relationships and get to know you, but ultimately performance is what we're based on. And so my role is to get as many people there, and I'm talking staff and players. They've, you know, I've just been challenging them in this time to think about, write down. I've been a really appreciate and really impressed and and thankful for the work that everyone's done but i've asked everyone in this time to write down a couple of things or things that when we get back that you can take it to another level and they've sent it to me and i've been able to get it like like the two of us are doing now and just talk through it and mm-hmm. it's been awesome because when i arrived people said how are you going to get connect to be a better team how are you going to get bristol to team well every individual has to get better and myself included we got to keep growing i keep challenging people but that's that. That was the um, you know, a really important uh, thing uh, for me. That at the end of the day, our performance is what matters. And I've let some really not good people go because the performance um, needed to be better, and someone else can bring that performance. So you're always looking at balancing the two. But ultimately, you know, with the nature of the sport we're in. Our currency, our main currency is our performance. I, I know there's, again, speaking to people who you work with, there's an element of what you do, and correct me if any of this is wrong, but there, you, when you're looking at a rugby player, you'll split them in half. So you'll split them towards performance and person. And when you're, so when you're reviewing and when you're critiquing, you're speaking to the performance side of the player. Whenever you're speaking to them, trying to get them on side to make sure we're all headed towards the same goal to the player side of that, is that fair? Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that when you have, like I never, whenever I start, I always do one-on-one with each player. You know, and you go through it, and you're basically just raising the awareness. So I, you know, I, I could give a rough idea. I think you're this. You're about this standard. Da, 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 but that's not what's important. The important thing is where they see themselves. The important where they see they need to improve. My role is to be able to help them. And then when I talk about, um, you know, I ask them. I normally ask, or I do ask every player, what would you like from me as a coach? What would you like me to do? How would you? The number one thing without a doubt head and shoulders above everything out is honesty okay what do you mean by that feedback honest so honest feedback and their mind question that comes back all the time is can you handle it mm. and they oh yeah, yeah, yeah just tell me just tell me straight 
And I said, well, you know, that's good because normally in my experience, people love feedback unless it's something they don't want to hear. And I said, but look, don't worry, I'm not here. I want to make it really clear between me and you that every feedback that I give you, both positive and work on, is to help you. I just want to help you. Is that cool? So I build that at the very beginning of every relationship I start with a player. So then even when it comes to something that might be hard, I might even, you know, it's hard for me to say it, but it needs to be said. I just normally open up with, remember that time we had that conversation and I asked you what you wanted from me? And I said, yeah, what did you say? And he goes, honestly, feedback. And remember I asked if you could handle it? What did you say? Goes, yeah, I can. Well, I'm about to give you some uh, feedback that I want to help you with. It might be tough hearing it, but it's, uh, as I said, I just want to help you. And they're like, yeah, no, come on, tell me it. Just tell me it straight. Let me hear it. And so that's the importance of the connection of building that relationship and that trust with that player. Then you, you can be um, give them what they want, and everyone does want honesty, even even though it's not always. If you don't have the relationship, you just come out and say it. It, it ain't gonna work. That relationship allows for there to be an environment for growth, and that growth mindset is something that I know you're really big into. But what it also does is it allows you to have difficult conversations because what you're trying to do is get everybody to head the same direction. Like you've said, the currency is always performance, and what we do, whether it's sales and the the currency is how many things you sell. You know, there must be times when the conversations are difficult because what you're dealing with as a coach, which I'm uh, involved in as a player, and I know the difficulty that you have is you're dealing, you're dealing with the dynamics of ego, you're dealing with selection, you're dealing with injury, you're dealing with contracts. So when, when you're having those conversations, do you have to reference yourself back to those key, key parts of how you get that message across? Yeah, I think a lot of the presentations I do at the start of the season and through the season, there's a lot, lot, lot of different things around this is our structure, you know, giving everyone clarity, you know, and when we gave clarity of what our five-year plan is and what our goals and objectives are, you know, made it very clear that as an organisation we've got to get to here and then we've got to get to here. So the only way we're going to do that is everyone coming up in, the, in your performance. But alongside that, we have a salary cap as an example. And one of the things that you're constantly looking at, you're, you're looking at value. You're looking at who's going to add value. And I'll give an example, you know, we've got 19 guys leaving. We've only got seven coming in. Um, but what I've got is I've got a lot of, uh, I've got three Bristol boys uh, promoted into the group from the academy. I brought another five Bristol boys into the integrated academy. Um, so you're bringing through the bottom, which is all part of the model and the plan we're using, you know, to, again, uh, fit within the cap. What you're asking, too, is that there's some players that I'm leaving that I'd like to keep. But ultimately, you're asking, well, hold on, I pay this for this player. This player's come in and his performance, you know, and he's, his value's at this level, but he's now, you know, surpassed this guy here. So when you're weighing those sort of things in the same position, you have to let this good, this good person go. And this person's, you know, just come in, but it's for the value and he'll come through and it just helps fit within it. If we didn't have a cap and if we had money and everyone, then it'd be life's easy. But... I think the beauty of it, it forces you to make the right questions. The other reasons why, um, while the difficult decisions are really tough, uh, whether it's staff or players are letting people go, I bring it back to when I got sacked. I didn't make those decisions when I was a younger coach because I started thinking, oh, you know, I, I knew the families and, and I, I was worried about their situation. Um, I didn't want to upset people. I thought, oh, okay, we could go. And, and ultimately, when I got sacked, Guess what all those people that I was worried about did? New coach came in, they carry on, 
Me and my wife went through our own adversity, six months unemployed, right, what are we going to do? And finally, we ended up in Connacht. Whereas, so that was great experience and you learn from all your life experiences. But one that came from me is, again, I won't mix relationship with performance. I'll get on really well and treat them as well as I can and get to know them as well as I can. But the only thing we're going to decide we stay and go is performance. Because if I look after them then and we don't get become better, I'll, I'll be the one who ends up paying the ultimate price. So that's, yeah. the, that's the beauty of getting sacked. It's always a yeah. positive. If you lose your job, well, don't care it's a negative. It just means there's another door somewhere. Take your learnings and move on and you'll come back stronger. Absolutely. And I think I wanted to touch on this at some stage because as part of my perception of what the culture and the environment that you said is, it's, it's very much the constant strive for improvement and growth. And you, you're no different to that because you live this model whenever you got, when you, when you lost your job at Auckland, as you've just stated, you know, there was a quote that I found that I thought was so interesting. And it was, I always say we're in a, such a fickle industry and that is why I was pleased to be sacked by the blues. It's like getting dropped from a team because you only learn from going through that. When I got sacked, I said, I finally joined some of the coaches I aspire to be because all of them have lost their jobs at some stage. And I thought that was really powerful because we're going to get to how you drive that culture and that review process with the players, but it's something that you're living in everyday life too. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, I always say we are who we are for the life experiences that we've been through. And we've all got different ones, but there's some that we can really grow. And, you know, people think success is this. You start at the bottom, it's a straight line going up like this, but it's not. It is a roller coaster, up and down and up and down. And there's no guarantee that you come up. And we've all got testimonies or stories of people that haven't come through it. But the one guaranteed way, I believe, that can really help you and it's, it's, it's now embedded in our culture and everything that we do, whether it's as an individual and units or as a team, you know, is two questions. What did I do well today? What did I do well on this thing? Second question, what can I do better? Those two questions are massively powerful, simple but powerful, because the first one reinforces you that you're good at what you do. The second one is all about your growth. For people who only focus on, oh, I did this well, I did this well, I did this well, they're actually losing that ability to grow and grow quickly. The ones who only focus on, oh, I've got to do this better, I should have done this better, I should have, they actually end up with self-confidence, self-esteem, belief issues because they're not acknowledging all the good things that they've done. So as a coach and as a, you know anyone that's leading people, it's really important that you keep your people balanced on those two things. So when I get players who come into their reviews and they start off, the first thing they start off is, I, asked, I thought I did this really well, I did this really well, and I normally acknowledge that, yeah, maybe that was outstanding, really good, but tell me what you could do better now, and then they go there. Vice versa, a guy comes in, oh, I'm not happy with this part of my game, I didn't do this well, I didn't do this well. You know, then I'll, I'll, I'll go, we'll make sure we talk through well, what happened, what's the plan, how can we fix this? But then I normally go straight into, okay, tell me what you've done well. And even when they don't, and I present, there's are some players I know that will come like that, I'll make sure I've got a clip for them. When they say, oh, I didn't do anything, I said, hold on, look at this. Look at you getting up quickly here. Got over into this position, got in shape. Now, the effort you made there was outstanding. Because it's really important that we keep that balance. So when we got smoked by Worcester in the first year, uh, by 50 points, you know, I saw that as I was waiting for that to happen in the sense that everyone was believing, look how the gains we've made, we're going really well. You need that hit. And that hit was important for us. Not, not, not enjoyable, didn't like it at all. But what I remember saying in that change room, which I do all the time, all right, fellas, you know, it's, 
uh, yeah, performance, the outcome's not great, but there's some good things we've done. Make sure you go through and have a look at it. We'll have that in the review. And then be honest and look through the things we can do better. And when we've won by 50 points or we've had a big one, same thing. What have we done well? Great. There's some good stuff here. But let's go back into that performance. Look at your own. Our coaches will look at the team and find the things that we could have done better too. So keeping that balance is a good thing. And it's the same, you know, even when I'm talking with you, at the end of this, when I finish, I'll go back and I'll have a think and you know, have a listen later and say, well, I thought I did that well. Uh, I'll also ask the question, actually, I could have done that better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what, one of the things that is very clearly tied in with the want and the desire to constantly review yourselves and be better is, is this fundamental theme of hard work. It's something that you can't ignore because it's something that is very clear from all the teams that you've coached. And I find it really interesting that in your gym, there's a phrase above the door. And I know that that's constant throughout um, the gym and Connor as well. Do you want to tell people what that theme is or what that phrase is and how that is so, how and why that is so important to what you drive? Yeah, it says be world-class at the things that don't require talent. Everyone has this... uh um, this false impression that uh, the successful people are those who have all the talent. Um, the talent is what God's blessed you with. You know, what you do with that talent determines, you know, where you're going to end up with it. And, um, and we all got, you know, I, I could go off with so many different stories. Um, but we've all got so many different examples or testimonies of people who've wasted their talent. And then you look at the people who are successful. I mean, even watching The Last Dance, Michael Jordan, yes, he had talent, but what he did from what he... Was he the same person when he started the NBA to the end? No, he put a lot of work into it. And that's the whole principle about growth mindset and fixed mindset. And it's a really important thing, uh, listen, and I was fortunate enough, I should say, right here, you know, the mindset book from Carol Dwork. I had, when I went to America and did a bit of study on sports psych and I got a chance to meet her and she presented and it just resonated so much that, and even I started thinking about it as, as a father, I mean, we love our kids, but we're also bad. When we, when we, we got to be careful when we say, oh, you're natural, you, you know, um, you know, you're, you're, you're beautiful. Of course, you're, they're beautiful. But when you say key words, think about what you're saying because, the people that grow up and think they're natural and everything comes easy to them, they think that the moment that there's a bit of adversity, they walk away from it. Say, well, that shouldn't happen because I'm supposed to be natural. But the growth mindset is all understanding around the fact that if you work hard, then you'll be able to get better. You work, you, and you relate your performances and the things you've done well to hard work. So if I've missed out on a team, instead of me going, oh, I'm a failure, okay, I've got to go back. I've got to work hard. I've got to get better at it by putting the effort into it. Um, or um, I failed my exam at school. My kids said to me, Dad, I, um, I passed my exam at school. I said, of course you did, because all the work you put in, I knew you would, the study, fantastic. All the work you put in gets you the outcome. So making sure our language is geared to making sure that our young people understand the reasons why the successful thing is not about being natural or being talented. It's because of effort and work ethic. And that whole saying, you know, we used to break down, what does that look like on the field? You know, things that don't require talent getting up off the ground. That's not a talent. That's a decision. You know, we can all do it. You know, running back when the ball's kicked, getting into position quickly. You know, uh, all of these things don't require talent. So let's be better at it. And so that, you know, when I was at, we had it up in the gym in Connacht and I've put it up in the gym in Bristol as well. I put it, if I go to another place, I'll put it up there because it's such a, uh, it just drives a message of the culture we want. And we make sure that we highlight and review efforts and we actually have a team effort of, or, a, um, you know, a, um, uh, the effort of the week. 
Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. It's it's something that I probably, <laughs> probably because of my lack of talent, it's something that I'm very, very familiar with. But no, I think this this theme of, you know, in another word, in another words, it's just doing the shit jobs, loving doing the shit jobs. And I think what that also does, and I'm interested to know um, on your opinion, because you're the one driving it. I'm just the dude who coaches the Worcester Wanderers amateur team on a Tuesday and a Thursday. But it's something that I'm formulating in my in my mind is, does that also drive the culture of the person? Because that ties in with making sure that people are willing to do the shit jobs or the things that require no talent. And that says a lot about those people, even when they have, all, you know, Charles Pieta's ability. Yeah, it's the, you know, character and, um, you know, or culture is really when people do things when no one's looking, you know, and do the, make the extra yards and, you know, even, even simple thing, you go to a mall and there's stairs and there's the, you know, the, um, the escalator going up and, you know, the easy way and the hard way, easy way I can just get on stand and take me up or I can make that effort. I'm going to walk up the stairs because it's the harder way, you know, training yourself to do all sorts of, there's ways to train it, but, you know, when you put a massive emphasis as a coach, but more so reward it, just like, you know, parenting now, and I've got five children, so <laughs> techniques as they've grown, they're all going into their 20s. But it's one of those things where, you know, you're always thinking about the messaging that you give that ultimately ensuring that, you know, you're trying to inspire them to, to work hard and, to, and, to, and that you'll be successful with whatever you want to do, you know. And then that's why, like, do my kids want to play rugby? It's up to them. You know, they want to do whatever you want to do. And I normally sign when I sign things for kids. For kids um, they ask me to sign messages. You know, I normally say, just keep chasing your dreams. You know, um, unfortunately, people, they, even people that love kids and, and love their families and stuff, they can kill dreams. But people say, oh, it's gonna, you won't be able to do that. That's too hard. That's why never put boundaries. Allow them to chase their dreams and, uh, and keep everything open. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. And and now I suppose we've talked a lot about the off the field. I'm interested to know how do how do your training sessions reflect these these standards that you expect and demand and live throughout the culture of, of Bristol, for example, because there's a lot said about the way teams train and the standards that you train at will reflect the standards that you play. And that's something I'm constantly trying to work in my head as a young coach. So, you know, how do your sessions on the pitch reflect these, these morals and these standards? Well, I think the, um, the big one is, you know, the culture should come through there. Like a you know, simple word I have for culture is love. You know, and when I first put that up at Connacht, I got the same response that I expected at Bristol as well. Guys looking up, but we need to find love. It's sacrificing oneself for the benefit of others. So think about all the people you love. Would you do anything for them so they could be? Of course you would. So we mm-hmm. build relationships so that we, we grow that love. We grow. And I don't need to bring someone in to tell me, you know, how our culture is paid thousands of dollars and come and look at our culture. You can see it. You know, even in our game, you know, you know, if I'm on the bottom of the breakdown and I'm potentially two guys are going to pinch that ball and you come along and you do what reason people don't want to play rugby, drop your body height right down. A guy is bigger than you. You've got two guys and you power your weight and with a great technique to clear that. That's a lot of love. You showed a lot of love to me. You sacrificed yourself so I could benefit and get the ball back for the team. Likewise, if I'm, I'm about to defend this guy here and he steps me and he runs on the inside, you're five metres away, but you put that burst of speed in to catch him for me and get him and I come and help you out. I mean, that's, to me, that's a lot of love. When I see you going, to, like what you're doing with your Worcester Wanderers is awesome. That's you showing love for your club, for you going to help these other guys, making a sacrifice to help them out. Mate, if you understand what it is 
and you make it clear this is what our culture is about love, then you go recognising it and acknowledging people who are doing it. And I see it every day. Every day I walk into our club, I see, oh, man, it's a lot of love, guys. And I'm even now in the lockdown, I'm seeing a whole lot of love by guys and girls in our group that are looking out of others and helping others. And so just keep getting that in there and then you recognise it on the field. I mean, the way we train is the big thing for us. Training has to be tougher than the game. We want guys to get to the game and go, they can make good decisions because we've been here. Week. And that's why the alignment of the um, athletic performance team, the physical side, the medical, the analysis, and the rugby side has to be completely aligned so that we can be effective. It doesn't mean we train for ages and long, but we've got to make sure that we're really clear on what we're doing. And then when you're under, then you train with intensity, but you can't train with intensity until you have clarity. You know, so the whole build-up is making sure people got clarity on, on um, you know, the game plan, clarity on the set piece, clarity on where they got to be in phase play, and then once everyone's got clarity, then you ramp the pressure up. And as you ramp the pressure up, then you're starting to put pressure. We we talk about in mental skills, we talk about blue zone. There's a lot of red zone in the game. You know, we're frantic, and and guys are able to flick into the blue zone and be calm and make good decisions. It's massive, even under pressure. So I have my favourite session is the blue zone session, where I will ramp it up. You know, and you're beating guys, and you're getting into the speed, time restrictions. But you're wanting the reason you're doing it, put a lot of pressure on so they can be calm. So you're you're encouraging mindfulness in that. That's the 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 Kiwi gazing concept of mindfulness, where you're expecting them to be able to control themselves within that moment and with the pressure that you're putting on them and produce the goods? Yeah, I wouldn't call it mindfulness. I know there's all that sort of stuff out there. What I, what I talk about is uh, being calm, you know, being calm and be, but being prepared. You know, it's like um, everything goes back to being obviously physically prepared, mentally prepared, but also I call the inner self who you are. So, you know, so if you're dealing with the, the who you are and I'm comfortable with who I am, accept who I am. I'm, 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 I've got self-awareness to understand that, you know, I'm good at what I do. I've also got self-awareness to understand that I can grow. i got good social awareness, that um, um, understanding that I've got people here that are different from me, but they're not, they're not more important than me and I'm, I'm not more important than them. We're all equal. doesn't matter what race or country I come from, which is important in professional rugby because we've got people from all over the world. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you have more than me or we, what background, at the end of the day, we're all equal. So getting people understanding that, then you're getting them to be effective, you know, relationship managers and dealing with conflict and stuff, and then you build them as leaders. All of these things come into it that you're working, you know, game, culture, leadership, that eventually comes to the point where when you put those moments on, they've got some real deep roots to um to hang on to and, and deal with situations. And these are life situations that they can use wherever they go. They're not just rugby ones. Make decisions under pressure and be empowered to give them. So don't just suddenly, all right, I want you to do this, 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 and this, this, this. No, you can't do that. You empower them to put them in situations that are going to have to make these decisions for themselves. And, you know, whether it's on the rugby field, whether it's at 3 o'clock in the morning out in, out in town where there's all sorts of distractions, or whether it's, you know, uh, driving the car and down the motorway and peak out traffic, you know, being able to have these decision-making abilities under pressure. I think that process versus outcome, decision-making, constructing processes that allow people to make decisions and then not being so... I know we're in a results-based business, but not being so focused on the outcome that you lose sight of those people making good decisions. You know, it's like it's like the analogy that everyone in rugby uses. You're five metres from your own line and it's on to run. You make that decision 
in that moment and the execution is should be separate in my opinion there's one thing i'm really interested in because this is a huge part of being the top of the tree which is a director of rugby or I know the people who you've got in charge of medical and strength and conditioning. I know them personally, and I know that they're amazing at their jobs. There's an awful, and I know, you know, I know Mul, John Muldoon, and I know a lot of the people that are really good people at what they do in their job. But when you sit top of the tree, how much do you have to trust them to cover their individual sections? Because Rory Murray as a medical, as the head of medical, and Kev as the head of SNC, you know, it's very easy as a coach to try and want to influence what they're giving you back, but you have to be able to get delegate and trust these people to do what they're proven and, and, and respected at doing? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I think the number one thing is, um, you know, when I came to Bristol, uh, there's four things that I asked for Steve Lansdowne I need to achieve this plan. And when I ask people, what do you think number one was? What do you think most people say? When I say there's four things I'm going to ask Steve Lansdowne for, what is number one? I think most people would say uh, budget, probably money. I don't know. Yes, that's number four. Number yeah. one. Was that, that's what I think. Yeah, I think people would say that. I have to be clear. That's not what I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now you're onto <laughs> it. Staff. Mate, I am, and the program that I want to run is only as good as the quality of the management team and the staff. That's more important than players. You can give me the best players in the world, but if I do not have quality management, um, then the, the program's going to fall down. So getting the staff right is really important. And then even when they come in and I'm challenging, and, I, you know, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, I have to make changes, and that's not because they're not good people. It comes back to, are they the best? Can they be the best? Are they striving to be the best? And if not, then I have to replace it because I've got to make sure. That's what Steve and Chris are asking me, is Pat the best? Is Pat the best? And so I've got to make sure that we can get the best out of that program. But once you get the best or you have them, in which I agree with you, I mean, Rory and Kev are outstanding in that area. The number one thing is that I trust them because they're really good and they've shown me what they can do and and they know. But the other thing, when I employ them, I show them, this is the plan. I give every single staff member and player my coaching philosophy. I explain, I, I do a presentation at the start of the year and I'll do it with all the new players that are coming in who haven't seen it. I do a presentation on what's important to me. I let them know about me. I let them know where I've come from. I let them know that all the important things around my family, all of that stuff. What, Because I don't want them to second guess. I want them really clear what I'm about. But then I also ask them to present on what's important to them so everyone else can see it. And then the next thing is that the it's, it, train of command goes up and down. You know, I want them to make good decisions. All I need to know. So if, we, if there's an issue with, say, a physio and all these things, you know, if Rory comes to me and says to me, Pat, I need to change the staff member. I'm like, yeah, fine, it's fine, that's good. If you, if you, I trust you if you want to do that. Or if he comes to me and says, um, you know, this, this staff member has been outstanding, you know, if, if he's looking for a pay increase and stuff. And then I'll ask the questions and he said, yeah, go through. Then I trust him. It's the same with Kev. So making sure you've got good staff that can make good decisions under pressure aligned to the vision. They don't have to make decisions. Again, you go back to the original equation. Their decisions have to be based on the vision. As long as they know what the big plan is, how they go about getting it. I'll give you a really good example of this, uh, Niall. When I first came to Bristol, same thing. No one, well, I took them all on a conference. We're all together, 45 staff. And I asked them, what's the Brist write down what you think the Bears' vision or the Bristol rugby vision was at the time. Seven different answers, all right? And I said, that's like seven different doors. At the moment, the reason why you've been in the championship so long, there's good people, but every seven different doors people are going out. Once I put up um, 
Steve Lansdowne's one about inspiring a community for rugby success. I said, does that vision encompass what you have? Everyone went, yeah, what we've done now, we're all going out the one door. Now, if I asked everyone to stand up now and walk out that door, no one's going to go exactly the same steps. That's not a problem as long as you're going out that door. And, um, and going differently shows our characters, our individuality, our values, our gifts, our skills, which is great. As long as we're all going that door, the moment three or four decide to go out that door, we got a problem. Absolutely. And I think the, this ties in with the kind of final bullet point before we get to a few personal questions for you. You know, the, the, the last part for me, and I know it's massive for you, that brings this whole thing full circle is community and family. And we've touched on it briefly. And I know you're a big advocate of getting out into the community and helping the, the areas that you, you invested, you get yourself invested into the areas that you, you coach a rugby club because that's important. And being from New Zealand and from a family uh, from Samoa, it's no surprise to me that you put that much emphasis on community and family I was wondering when you put family and community into that that's kind of for me the glue that that gets that ties everything together would you agree totally agree I'll go back to the amateur day in the amateur day you played for your school and you were proud you played for your club and you played for your province and you possibly play for your country and you'd never change you wouldn't even think and it's like in Ireland you know with the Gaelic football you know, you play for your parish and you don't mm-hmm. do, you don't dare change, you know. But professionalism changed it. But when you played there, I remember in those, when you did that, when I played for my school and we were playing the, the school right next door, man, there was massive crowds and you'd be putting your body on the line and putting all the effort to put for your school. You're so proud. Well, that sort of feeling became difficult within um, professionalism because suddenly I was playing for Newcastle, okay, North East, never... But what I did there was I wanted to go and I spent a lot of time in the community to meet my neighbours, meet people, do a bit of research on what it's about, what's important to them and talk to them. Because I wanted to find myself in that same situation. I was, I was quite an emotional player. I needed the emotion to have a reason to get me going. And I wanted to know when we're five points down on the line defending or going for it, I wanted to know what's going to, what am I pushing for? You know? And so to do that, and I realised also when I was coaching uh, the blues and I brought up a couple of crusader boys up man blue blue and white red and black were fierce enemies over history yeah so there's no point in me talking about, in the old days we could talk we're Auckland you could talk about who we are what we are and the pride but these guys were in Auckland players they hated Auckland they grew up hating Auckland but what I got them to understand was is that I wanted them loyal to the team, but I wanted them to introduce them into the kids and the community because then they start, oh, these are the guys I represent. These are the people. So when I arrived to Connacht, it was the same thing. I didn't. I knew Connacht, but I didn't know. As soon as I saw there, oh, Sligo, Galway, Roscommon, Mayo, Leitrim, I went, oh, all right, five. Okay, I want to get out. And so before I even started, me and my family, we travelled around, started to see, what a beautiful place. And started, you just go into the pub, you know, talk to the locals, have a chat, and, you know, and find out. And I realised, geez, all the players need, we need to, we represent these people. So we started to do trainings, and we did a training session over, over pre-season, each one of them. I did a, um, a challenge, a um, amazing race challenge where they had to go and take photos. They, and they, the day they started at 6.30 in the morning, they went to 7 at night. They just did their thing. Well, I could do a management day. And these guys all went into the things. They had to get certain landmarks. But, man, it was amazing. Some boys who in Ireland hadn't been to some of the provinces, um, to the, um, you know, the other uh, counties. So it was great. But, it, but what it did, it brought the guys' understanding. These are the people we represent, whether you come from Dublin, down in Cork, 
you know, up in Belfast or whether you come from New Zealand, Samoa, Australia, South Africa, these are the people we represent. And what ended up happening, we invested so much into our community, like we're doing at Bristol, the community got behind us, all of them, you know, and we had, you know, record um, record season tickets in both Connacht and now Bristol. Um, and, and more importantly, the boys love it. The boys love it. They just become, you know, they realise, actually, it's more than just rugby. Exactly. Thank you. That's what it's about. If you play for something bigger than yourself or bigger than the team, uh, you'll be ama- able to do amazing. One thing probably to, I wanted to get in there as well, in both places, mindset was massive. I said, look, fellas, if we want to be champions, we've got to start thinking like champions. We've got to start talking like champions. We've got to start behaving and training like champions. And the chances of us becoming champions goes up. It's not guaranteed because a whole lot of work. But that's the key thing it's the, around our mindset um, because both places I arrived to, you know, it was a lot of doom and gloom. A lot of that, that won't be happening. And I think the person who leads needs to have belief. And I'm a big dreamer. Um, I, I could see that we were going to win it in my head and then put the plan. I can see we're going to be the most dominant team in Europe, you know, in many years. Um, but they can put the plan. So for dreams to become reality, it's the same thing about the growth mindset. They start putting the work into the plan. That sums up really well. I'm, I'll, I don't need to touch on that anymore. I think the, the, the why and the how is important and then the community and the family knits it together, makes it achievable, makes it, gives it a reason. And then, like you said, you know, the person at the top of the tree has to believe because his, his, his reflections, his body language, his ambitions will drip feed the whole way through the rest of the organization. So in tying this up, I think it's interesting for me. And I wonder, as someone who's kind of formulating my thoughts and my, my ideas, where do you believe that your thoughts and processes as a coach have come from? Have they, have they developed over years? Because you've started you know, clearly as a leader, you've, you've led the whole way through your playing career, as we discussed, you've learnt and reviewed through your coaching career, and then you reach a point where you have success with Connacht and you're driving a new standard at Bristol. Where does it all come from? Where in the earliest days do you remember that kind of desire and want to figure out how this works? Without a doubt, your life experiences, what you read, what you do, what you go through, good and bad, being able to go through that with those two questions. I did this really well. I, I could be better here. Um, one of the things I remember as a kid, again, minority sport, I was teased a lot when I was younger because I was bigger and my lips were bigger. I was different from the kids that are around. But one of the things I realised was that I was good at rugby. When I picked the ball up, I was generally bigger. <laughs> I <picked the> <laughs> Helps. But, but I started to recognise people started looking at me differently because I was, I was good at this. And I realised, actually... You know, if uh, if I work hard at this, it complete. It started to help my own self worth from there. Once I got to that point of understanding, because I, I I have no doubt that a lot of people that went to school with me when I was younger would be shocked that I that I do what I do now. You know, because I was relatively quiet uh, when I was younger. Because again, my own thing. I'm a Samoan. You know, you're trying to keep down because people are looking down at you. But then my chest and and came out. My shoulders went back once I realised that I am worthy, I am good at what I do, I am I, I'm not inferior to anyone else. And then once that happened, then I can contribute better. And then through my sport, and then I became leader, captains, and most of the teams that I played. And then I got an influence into realising from that, actually, the best way to get the best out of my teammates was, A, make sure that I'm doing the business first, 
and B, you know, there's a variety of ways of trying to inspire them and, and get them to do And it was such a massive feeling, you know, I'm across, even from school, you know, we were the first, our school, uh, when I kept them, we won it for the first time ever in the history, then the Auckland competition, the New Zealand competition, the club I went to hadn't won Marist, and we had John Kerwin, uh, Zinzan Brook, um, all, um, all the famous names there. But we hadn't won for 35 years, our club, and we were, I was involved in the team that won it. And, and I learned from there about culture, about leadership, about having a good game, but more importantly about relationships. And I had a call the other day out of the blue from Zinzan Brook, um, in London, we haven't caught up for ages, just ringing to say hi and how's it all going. And we were just reminiscing about our club days, you know, that we were the amateur and the things that we used to do. And, you know, just talking about, now, now, um, you know, and all of those things I, I look back, they've, they've made me who I am. So I think if any encouragement for you, we've all got different journeys, but we can learn from others' journeys. I remember at our school, as a simple example, we used to be, I was at school, we had the strap. You know, man, you, you, you talk, you do your homework, and bang. But the learnings I took from that, I don't have to get the strap to learn not to do my homework. I'm watching other guys get what? Okay, do my homework. So we can, just a little lesson there. We, we can learn from everyone else, and that's why reading, watching good programs, uh, good listening to good podcasts, you know, like I've enjoyed this time listening to other people talking, you know, and as you mentioned, you know, Stu Lancaster, you know, been been fantastic listening to him and a lot of other coaches and of different sports. So all that does is grow you, learn you, also confirm you're on the right track, makes you consider, reflect, shall I change, shall I add this in? But um, you know, all of these things are, you know, and your journey is unique, everyone's journey is unique, but it all ends up being successful as, 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 as much as you want to make it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, that is the main fundamental reason that I'm doing this because there's an opportunity for us to be really productive and really creative about how much we learn. And I just want to wrap it up and say a huge thank you because some of the insight there is unbelievable. There'll be loads of people from so many different you know, aspects of, of the world who can take stuff from that. I had messages after the last one was shared about how business can apply to this. And I think this is absolutely no different. Creating culture, creating a vision, executing the, the ways in which you do that, which you've discussed in such detail is so useful. And a huge thank you for coming on, Pat. Pleasure, Niall, mate. And a fair play to you. You know, still a young man doing all this. And as I said, you know, you're helping out the, um, you know, the Worcester Wanderers, which is awesome, you know, the amateur day, and then also helping people this way. Fair play to you. Well done, buddy. Thank you very much, Pat. I appreciate it. All the best. Cheers, mate. A big thanks to Pat for coming on the show to have such a great chat, which is relatable to so many fields. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. We are very excited to announce the sponsor VVS giveaway on social media very soon. So as always, keep an eye on Instagram and Twitter at Wind Your Neckin for how to get involved. I'm Niall Annett and you've been listening to Wind Your Neckin.